Christ is risen. He is risen so we'll celebrate St. Michael and All Angels today. Uh, St. Michael and All Angels is actually September 29th, of course, so it was Friday. This, there was also a Friday in 1724, so a two, was that 299 years ago? I was, I was hoping it was going to be 1723, because the, but he had a different cantata. So what you just heard was the closing of Bach's cantata for St. Michael and All Angels in 1724, was on a Friday that year, 723 was on a Wednesday. So what, what you heard there was music that he wrote for the divine service on the festival, so it didn't matter what day it is. Um, but that's, that's the music, this church, that's the church that that was performed, I guess, in um, on, that, on that day. Uh, doesn't look like he's got that much of a balcony to work in, uh, but for that piece, for these festivals, um, the, the orchestra that he had, he had, it was like three trumpets, timpani, um, but he had like th three oboes, uh, two violins, the other strings, I mean, just quite a, with four, four main singers, four you know, principal singers, but then a chorus, a choir with four voices, I don't know how many people he had, there's a ton of room up there. That's Leipzig, yeah, Leipzig. Yeah, that's the church where, the big church in Leipzig, uh, St. Uh, Nikolai Kirchhoff, uh, I believe. Uh, there were several churches in Leipzig, and Bach was in charge of music for all of them, and he would have to sometimes go around and do, do music, and he'd have a different choir at a different church on that Sunday, but he was in charge of all of them. Had to write music for all of the churches every, every Sunday and the festivals, whether they were you know, on Friday or not. Um, that hymn that you that you heard, I know it's in German, so I don't expect you to know it. Um, what would you guess? Well, you recognize that the hymn. What would you catch it? The rhythms is a little bit different, but you know the tune, right? Does it sound familiar? Dun, 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 dun. That's our, our tune goes. Da, 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 da. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's what. Um, uh, that we'll call the common doxology. Old Hundredth is the name of the tune, but in German, in German hymnals, uh, and by, by Bach's time, they, they had this tune. It's an, well, it was first in a Genevan Psalter, but they called it, in, in German, the name of the tune is an Old Hundredth. That's an English title for it. In German, they call it the name of this hymn that they were singing, uh, which is our hymn of the day for today. We're gonna sing that to a different tune, we're going to sing it to the tune of Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. But that hymn, the, our hymn of the day today, is what Bach based this cantata on. Uh, great, great cantata, but we don't have time for that today. We are going to talk about heresies, <laughs> uh, controversies, heresies in, the, in this page. So I want to just, uh, just review, or if you have any questions or follow-up thoughts on what we had talked about before. We had talked about several of them, but just... Any follow-up thoughts from last week? I'll have us review a little bit. So we talked about Arianism, Apollinarianism. Now, this is not, uh, it's not like Apollinarianism, as, as if it's like just a, a prefix. So Arius was the guy here, and Apollinarius was a, these were teachers. 
Pelagius was a guy, and Nestorius. These are all named after individuals, the, the teaching. Um, but just for your review, see if you can match. Back up. Come on. Well, that's not going to, because. Stay. All right. See if we can match up the teaching with, or the, the, the name of it with the, uh, with the heresy. I'll give you a few seconds to just to read them through and look at them and see if you can detect them. start with Arianism, or no, let's, let's start, let's go this way, because then we can name the number, number one, two, three, four. Which is the teaching that says that this enough good remains in man to allow his free will to choose God? Ring a bell? Or can you see that on your sheet at all? It leads to decision theology. Now, number two, this would be Pelagianism, um, that, that man, the, the fall doesn't remove man's free will, so he's, he's free to, to choose the good and to choose God. Um, so that's Pelagianism is, is the first one. Number three, Jesus is not eternal, but came into existence when he was begotten of the Father. That's the first one. That's Arianism. Yeah. There was a time when he was not. Jesus isn't eternal. Okay. Narrowing it down. Jesus could not have a human mind and remain the sinless son of God. It's not the last one. <laughs> so, number, so number two, if this is Apollinarianism, Apollinarianism, so like it's not, it, it, so, so Jesus is true man except in his body, but in his mind, he has the divine mind. Like he gets a brain transplant, a divine brain transplant. And so his brain is God, but the rest of him is man kind of idea. Uh, and then finally, only human nature in Jesus was born and died since God is eternal and cannot die. That would be Nestorianism. That's splitting up the divine uh, nature. Kind of a short summary of all of these, you could say, Arianism says Jesus isn't true God, isn't the true eternal God. Apollinarium says Jesus isn't completely man, because his mind isn't, right? Pelagianism denies original sin, man chooses God. Uh, Nestorianism divides Jesus into two or his two natures. His human nature, his divine nature, and they'll say at certain points in Jesus' life, like when he's born and when he dies, that splits, and it's really only the human Jesus that's born because only humans are born. And only, only the human Jesus dies because only humans die, but that, that divides the being, the being of Jesus. Okay? Um, all of these, I think, well... Maybe not so much the first one, but we pointed out along the way that 
since this, since the early church, these things have come up again and again. And I would say they're still, they're still alive today, even though we don't call them these things. Uh, particularly Nestorianism, I think, and Pelagianism. Ah, at least these three. Um, they, they still float around these ideas, these false ideas concerning Jesus. Um, all right. Number three, to me, the most popular in America, the salt or whatever, they don't do that a lot. Where they're like, you choose to believe, you know, come up to the front of the church. Or, yeah. So, yeah, well, and, and we, we are the, what some is termed decision theology, you know, this idea that human nature is not that fallen, that we have to do something. Bit, although at the same time, those people will say, we don't do anything. And then, in fact, some of them, they're like, we're so confident that we don't do anything, contribute anything to our salvation that we won't even baptize babies because we, because they think that baptizing babies is something that the baby does. It's just, I've never seen a baby get up and come to church on its own <laughs> and baptize himself. Never seen it. Um, right, right. So, but, but at the same time, some of the, the same, sometimes the same people will, will talk about when I made my decision to, for, for Jesus, I made my commitment. And that's actually what they believe the baby needs to do. That's why they don't baptize babies. It's because the baby needs to be old enough in order to make his decision. And not realizing that's actually something that you're contributing then, your will. It's your will and Jesus, you know, Jesus' life and death. But your will has to be in line with it. Instead of God coming to us changing our will, giving us a new will and a new heart that we might believe in. Um, um, and, and going uh, in the Reformation, they also, this one, they would accuse the, the Lutherans, said that Roman Catholics are, are, were being semi-Pelagian because the, their teaching also had some spark of, of an initial action in the part of, of man that God would infuse grace into someone, but that latent power that that God gave them would enable them to, to, to show love that would prompt God to save them. It would seem like it would happen in the uh, mission more when people that don't belong to church all of a sudden realize there is something they should be wrong, then they probably forget. I, you know, did it like sure. myself through instruction or whatever. Yeah, yeah, perhaps, yeah, like that, in that scenario, there may be more inclined towards that. Yeah. Um, I think in general, what we could say about all these heresies is that there is something in our sinful nature that kind of wants some of these things, particularly things like this. Like, we, we want to think of ourselves smarter than your average bear, right? Um, but or, certain people that don't want to come to church on Sunday, they figure they're Honoring God by being out in the woods or something. Yeah. Um. Well, <laughs> I mean, I've heard that. Yeah, I, I, I have, have too, although I don't, yeah, I, I don't hear it that often directly. <laughs> they don't try that on me, I don't know. Um, and, and, in wanting to commune with God apart from Jesus and his word. Yeah? Um, 
So, so those are the four. We, we had one left over, um, which one isn't named after an individual. Monophysitism. Um, you, can, you can recognize something in this already from the term mono, meaning one, right? And, and physis is, is nature. So one nature uh, is what, what this is about. And, that, and what it's going to get to is that the one nature is talking about in Jesus, that it's really the divine nature in Jesus. So, if, well, well, let's let's read. Um, so, Eutyches is someone who is in favor of this, and just this this little line out of, but out of, but not in two natures. That Jesus comes out of two natures, but not in two natures. Jesus doesn't have two natures. Uh, so now, what we're going to have is here a response. Uh, from Leo, he's called Pope Leo the Great, um, and this is called Leo's Tome. Is this document from 449 about Eutyches? So it's responding to Eutyches, and he writes. So it is on account of this oneness of the person, which must be understood in both natures. So when we're talking about Jesus, you know, we don't want to, as historians, to divide up the person. So that you have kind of two people. You've got the, the God Jesus and the human Jesus. We're not splitting up the person. One person, but two natures. And so monophysitism is saying, well, it's not really two natures. Because if it's one person, it has to just be one nature. It has, has to kind of merge together somehow. And the two natures are the, well, let's read Which must be understood in both natures. That we both read that the Son of Man came down from heaven when the Son of God took flesh from the virgin from whom he was born. And again that the Son of God is said to have been crucified and buried, since he suffered these things not in the divinity itself, whereby the only begotten is co-eternal and co-substantial with the Father, but in the weakness of the human nature. So you see there's the human nature and the divinity itself, the divine nature. So the two natures in Christ, divine nature and human nature. That is why in the Creed, too, we all confess that the only begotten Son of God was crucified and buried. Lost my place. Uh, read it, so there it is. Uh, following what the Apostle said, if they had known, they would never have crucified the Lord of Majesty. And when our Lord, when our Lord and Savior himself was questioning his disciples and instructing their faith, he says, Who do people say I am? Say I, the Son of Man, am when they have displayed a variety of other people's opinions, he says, who do you say I am? In other words, I, who am the Son of Man, and whom you behold in the form of a servant and in real flesh, who do you say I am? Do you see that I'm a man? Who am I? Uh, whereupon the blessed Peter, inspired by God and making a confession that would benefit all future peoples, says, you, man that we can see, human Jesus, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Two natures. You, man, human, are God. Jesus is God. Um, he thoroughly deserved to be called blessed by the Lord. He derived the stability of both his goodness and his name from the original rock. For when the Father revealed it to him, he confessed that the same one is both the Son of God and also the Christ. Accepting one of these truths without the other was no help to salvation. 
and to have believed that the Lord Jesus Christ was either only God and not man, or solely man and not God, was equally dangerous. So if we eliminate or downplay or put aside either one of the natures where this monophysitism, I don't want it to say, well, this is really the, this is the nature that matters, that the human nature fades away or gets swallowed up. That was a lot of times. The idea that the divine would just kind of swallow up the human. Like it would kind of destroy it. Which is the same sort of thing that shows up in the reason why um, uh, in, in the, the transubstantiation teaching in, in the Roman Catholic Church where in, instead of simply allowing the, the bread and the wine to, what do we say, contain, hold, carry, be the body and blood of Jesus, the divine does not swallow up the human. That the, 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 the divine doesn't swallow up the physical reality of the bread and wine. It doesn't have to, like the, the bread doesn't go poof and, and, and it's kind of the same idea that it can't, like, like the bread just can't stay bread if it's going to be the body of our Lord. And you say, well, the, the, the text doesn't say that. <laughs> it simply says this. Uh, and the, the text, the Bible doesn't tell us that the humanity of Jesus is swallowed up in the divine, in his nature, the, the human nature, the, like the divine nature is so strong that it just eats up the human and it's not really a, a human anymore. Kind of, he's like a, a, he like switches over into becoming only God um, and, and so on. Uh, then, so this was, this issue was dealt at another council called the Council of Con uh, Chal Chalcedon in 451, and this is where you know where they they make this particular two natures and one divine person. Yeah. And the person that's another ter technical term that they use in this that's we know in the Creed or in the Trinity, the teaching of the Trinity, where one God, three persons. But now when we talk about Jesus, now we have the one person of Jesus as two natures. And this, all this stuff comes up because someone misreads that and starts teaching. Well, my question down here at the bottom, Pope Leo wrote this to the bishop. So did Pope Leo believe there was two natures in explaining that about this other guy's writing? Yes. So he's, he's writing the correct the, the, right. the teaching and, and it's, and it's usually referred to Leo's tome here is kind of the, the definitive answer to, as well as the, the search council that, that articulates the correct biblical teaching. And that's, that's what Leo is, is writing after. Yep. And this, so then the, the thing that comes out of the, the Council of, of Chalcedon is what's called the definition of Chalcedon, or the definition of the faith of, of Chalcedon. Uh, from 451, and which says, uh, following the Holy Fathers, we with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a rational soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us regards his, regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. Does that language sound familiar at all? For what? Athanasian Creed? 
from you know twice a year, I think we get that part at least. With that that kind of narrow definition, that's that's probably I don't know if we have a firm date on where the Athanasian Creed is written or who it's written by exactly. It's called the Athanasian Creed, but Athanasius lived earlier than than, it, than we ever find it. But you can see some of the language though. So they're, they're borrowing from that in this kind of trying to narrow down because of things that have been working seconds. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but as regards his manhood born for us men and for our salvation. Oh, you recognize that phrase too. Of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, that's kind of slamming Nestorius. Uh, who objected to calling Mary the God-bearer because that was dividing up the human and the divine nature. Um, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. You know, so so like when, the, when, when those two natures are, are joined together, they don't fight and kill each other. You know, not that they're, they, they can live peacefully within Jesus, the divine and the universe. He's, he's, he's one guy. He's one person um, in, with these, both these two natures completely. Um, rather, the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsist, substance, subsistence. Not parted or separated into persons. One person. Uh, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So, see, all the, the language that we have in the creed uh, was, was wrestled out. Uh, and I, what I hope that we will do is have an appreciation for these particular, you know, for, as I mentioned last week, for the creed, the Nicene Creed, for example. Um, hard fought for. And the fact that some of these errors keep coming up in the church, and there have since then, a number of times, and some are still present today, means that we still want to have some idea and appreciation, and, and uh, we can't take these things for granted. It's though, oh, well, the church figured that out, so we don't have to bother with not knowing the, those distinctions. We, we would want to, in our, our faith life, be strong enough and, and grow in our knowledge. And all this is going to do, it's not about um, uh, picking at uh, just such fine points. It's not, what, what does the, what do this surround? It's who is Jesus. And the more that we, we delve into the person and the work of Jesus, the better for us, that we would get to know this Jesus all, all the more intimately. We're not, yeah, we're, this isn't just like finagling over these details like, like it's this unimportant thing. This is the teaching of who Jesus is. You know, and again, the, yeah, the more we know that, the better. Because what this will do is this will work in us a love for him. We'll learn to delight in who he is. Um, and, and that also would lead us to, to fight all the more. For if, someone, if someone's going to um, say something different, we're going to know. 
someone has a different idea of who Jesus is, and I'm not going to like shoot them for it, but I'm not going to fall for it either, right? Um, I'm, I'm not going to. Okay, so now we'll switch over. Unless you have questions on these, I know that I said from the start that's a lot of there's a lot of uh, reading, and we'll have more to come here as we get into our ten church fathers. So now we're going to do is we're going to go through ten individuals. Um, and see writings, mainly writings from them. Okay? And just to give us a sense, you've, you've, you maybe hear these names, um, and just so we, we've, we've read something um, from them and what they're all about. Okay? So the first one is technically not a church father. <laughs> um, technically, um, he's not a church father, but he is called the father of church history. So he's from this time frame, and the ones that we're going to do today are the earlier ones. Kind of take them in order. Um, Eusebius... Uh, dies 339. Uh, the date on here, it has him being born 263 or so. Um, so on the 10th Sunday after Trinity, I had available the copies of that account of Joseph, well, Josephus' account of, uh, I believe, the, of the, the destruction of, of Jerusalem. He's one who writes a, a history. Eusebius also writes the early church history, which is interesting to me because he doesn't have that much. And he's talking about the history of the Christian church. And he dies in 339. And we do church history today. <laughs> we have a whole lot more material to get through and a whole lot more. And I'll, I mean, to us, that seems like that should be pretty easy. Of course... You know, so in, in, you know, 300, when does the, his church history come out? 303. Um, he's got, you know, at most 300 years, but less than that, because I don't think he's talking from the time of the apostles up until his time. Um, but you're trying to describe this. Um, and a lot of the things that we've, in our previous section, some of the quotes, if you look back on the handouts from, from last spring, um, some of those were from Eusebius, who's writing this what he, um, his, his church history. And so the, the couple, first couple of quotes are from that, from the introduction. Uh, Eusebius writes, I feel inadequate to do it justice as the first to venture on such an undertaking, a traveler on a lonely and untrodden path. But I pray that God may guide me and the power of the Lord assist me, for I have not found even the footprints of any predecessors on this path, only traces in which some have left various accounts of the times in which they lived. You know, so he, they, he's got no sources. You know, for, for me to look up, I can, uh, I, I don't want to even, the, I, I hesitate to admit how many times Wikipedia has been used in, like, because that's not necessarily the best source of information just because it's a, anyone can edit that and, and but it is kind of useful and it's really easy. <laughs> To see, the, to see a Wikipedia entry on, say, you know, to, to search up Eusebius. Thing is, not, not, it's not like published by someone with any authority. Like, it, someone, you, you could go in there if you get an account and you could edit that page. You know, like, so can't believe everything you read on the internet. You may have heard that before. But, but just compare our ability to research things to someone in at you know the year 300 and trying to figure out what happened so he's got accounts of how they lived 
how the early Christians, what they did, and how they, you know, and he's, he's working, that's hard work. And he's, he's saying, I think I'm the first to do this, to write a history of, of the, the Christians, the early Christians, he's calling them. <laughs> but he's a whole lot closer than we are. He could, he could at his time, have also have testimony from people who, you know, if he's not going too far back, people who knew people. You know, we talked about that last spring when, you know, the, the, the chain of, of apostles. Um, who is it? Is, is Polycarp, you know, who was a disciple of John, you know, who was the disciple of Jesus. Like, the, there was a chain they knew. You know, when they're writing initially, they know people who knew the apostles, right? Um, so that gives it some some weight, but, it, but hard to do. Um, then he says, I myself have read the writings and teachings of the heretics, polluting my soul for a while with their abominable notions, though deriving this benefit. I was able to refute them for myself and loathe them even more. That's, I think, interesting. So, so not only to read the, the, the history, but also to read what some of these early heretics, these false teachers were writing, so that could be dangerous because a person could read them and fall into them. Um, but it's important, you know, is it important for you or any of us to read things that we know are not true <coughs> or that we disagree with? Some people, some people will do that and realize that some people <coughs> will avoid that. Yeah. I mean, think about it, like, is it, is it a good thing for us as a society, culture, for what, what they sometimes call silos, um, echo chambers, where, where you only, and, and you can do this, social media will help you with it. They will only show you things that you agree with. And if, so if the way, you know, you, you know, if, if the way that you get information, like, say, is, is a social media platform, the algorithm is is inclined to show you things that 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 you want to see, because that will keep you on the platform, and that helps advertisers. And it's it's not a it's not a conspiracy. It's just marketing, <laughs> trying to make money in, in general. Um, but but there's you know like it's interesting to talk to people, and they'll be like, oh, this is so obvious. Everything that I'm seeing is saying this. And you talk to someone else, and they're like, everything I'm seeing is saying this. And they're totally different. Have you ever done that? With it? Take a news story and look at two different websites? Go and do it sometime. It's fascinating. Look at CNN and look at Fox News on the same story, on the same event. And they will be completely opposite. You won't even know. I mean, it's like it's describing the same thing that happened in reality. But they are totally they're there. Um, it, it's, it's so what that's what happens to us is that we only then see the things that we already agree with. Um, there is sometimes value because then you don't know how to respond because you only respond as kind of as we're instructed to respond instead of having wrestled with. A useful way is actually talking to someone who actually thinks and you can actually talk, go back and forth with. Um, so, Pastor, so to answer your question, then you shouldn't tell us about your elitism and that kind of stuff, then, right? If it's false or if you're right? That's kind of answering your question. 
educated us on that. Um, I listened to a podcast with um, five different people, but two Christian, two Jewish, and I couldn't remember what the other person was. And the idea was they were supposed to try to find common ground that they spent so much time debating. But several of these names came up that the Christian person had to defend because the Jewish people were saying, well, did Arminius, or I might be saying that wrong, did he say, you know, and wasn't it this and all that? And he's trying to always get him back to say, no, the council, the council, don't pin me here, don't pin me there. But it just showed you the fragmentism, too, of Christianity that doesn't always hold well. But I was able to pick up those names, and he lost some ground there because he had to always tell them, no, no, oh, you're telling me you don't believe that? That was one of your leaders? And they came back to the council, and he says, no, take me. So, so yeah, the, they, they can pull out a quote from a Christian teacher. Didn't the Christian teacher say this? And, yeah, he did. He was wrong. <laughs> you know, um, and so like you can pull out stuff from the church fathers. And then they want to say everything's wrong now. Now I can't believe you because your Christianity has faults in it. Which, I did not, you know. which happens in modern day too. You know, if, imagine you have what, I mean, I don't know. But imagine you have two political leaders on two different sides of the of the spectrum, <coughs> and you know you've got Republicans, right? And you've got Republicans saying this, and they, they, they say all kinds of things. And you know, they, you think that they're one, they're not all one, right? And people say all kinds of things. And someone from the other side says, "See, one of yours said this," and then the others try to distance themselves from that, right? It's the same sort of thing, um, trying to associate what one person said with a whole group. Ah, see, that's what you, you folks, you people believe this because one of your guys said this, right? And they did that with Christianity. And, and the, the line that says, no, this is what the council decided, is not, I mean, I think that's the right, the right way to, to end up on it because this, and, and the councils could go wrong too. We have to recognize that too, but you know, um, yes, that was being taught, but we do not we do not hold to everything that every Christian teacher has ever said. I mean, if you think that the devil, Jesus dies and rises from the dead, and the devil goes home and he just goes home and brews beer, you know, he's like, I, I'm I'm done. Might as well just pack it in. Um, no, he, like, where, where, where does the devil want, you know, he, what does he want to do? Most of all, he wants to divide up the Christian church so that he can destroy it. Um, and, and so he's going to attack very hard, and he's going to continue to do that um, until he can't anymore. We'll hear about that in the, in the readings today. He knows that his time is short. <laughs> and so, so he's, he's ticked, the devil is, and he's, he's worried. Um, yeah, so like we, I didn't think I'd go, but then he says, I, I did get this benefit. I was able to recruit, recruit them for myself. It is very valuable for us as Christians to be able to, um, to understand false teachings on, our, uh, like he says, for myself and not just rely on kind of the lines that I've been told. It just, there's a wrestling that goes on with that. And I, when I talk to pastors, there's some pastors who, well, we'll talk about that. But every generation has to kind of wrestle with these because it leads us to become convinced in the truth. You know? I, don't, I don't have to take pot shots at 
you know, Baptists or Roman Catholics or anything like that, um, like uh, you know, or or people who are on the wrong side of anything with me. I'm confident in what we've been what we've been taught. I'm confident in the scriptures and the Lutheran confessions. Um, that's come from some wrestling. So I don't have any. I don't. It then comes from a place of conviction instead of just a place of kind of well this is what this is what I've been told um, that it, there's something with wrestling with that that's really a good thing for us and that's kind of what he points out here. But then what does it say? He says I refute them for myself and I loathe them even more. One of my favorite um, things that I've read over the years is is Martin Chemnitz's Martin Chemnitz uh, second Martin after Luther uh, next generation. Uh, he, he writes the Examination of the Council of Trent. It's four volumes. It's huge. It's his, it's his kind of master work. Um, and it, and he, he goes through the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic response to the Reformation. And he goes through doctrine by doctrine all the way through. Because this is the first time the Roman Church ever put down on paper totally like what their corpus, their body of doctrine is, was at the Council of Trent. It's still quoted today very much. And it's still official, Right? And he goes point by point all the way through it. And he goes, takes every single point and he goes all the way back to the beginning and saying, okay, here's the, you know when I talk about the origin of indulgences? That's, that's where I learned that. Because he goes through the whole thing from church history and said, you know, this is, this is where this came from. It started off as a decent thing, but then, then it, this turned um, and then they started talking like this. And you read through that and you're like, you learn great things and learn some things that are um, that we don't want to throw away from, say, the Roman Catholic Church, but it makes us no—it made me no fan of it, of of the the teaching. But now I know the difference, and now I don't just need to make fun of them or kind of like put it down. But I know where it's wrong, and I'm convinced. You know, um, it makes us have an understanding of what we believe, and then a distaste for anything that is not true. Last section, I don't have a citation, so I'm not exactly sure where this comes from, but it must be Eusebius. Uh, more doctrinal writings. For, for he alone, as the all, only all-gracious son of an all-gracious father, in accordance with the purpose of his father's benevolence, has willingly put on the nature of us who lay prostrate in corruption. And like some excellent physician, who for the sake of saving them that are ill, examines their sufferings, handles their foul sores, and reaps pain for himself from the miseries of another. So us, who were not only diseased and afflicted with terrible ulcers and wounds, already mortified, but were even lying among the dead, he has saved for himself from the very jaws of death. For none other of those in heaven had such power as without harm to minister to the salvation of so many. This is a beautiful description, although very graphic of Jesus saving us. Coming down into our mess. Uh, all the way in. Uh, so that he can save us. And he's got to. You know, It's messy, this business. Alright, so that's Eusebius. Then we have Hilary of Poitiers. Hilary, let's see, his years are 291-371. And he's in the if you look on your hand or your, your timeline, you see he's down at the bottom. Where up on the top it's the east, 
And then down at the bottom is the West. So Hillary Potier is in France. So think Western Europe. Um, Rome would be the West, but the East would be like Constantinople, Jerusalem, that's the East. Um, all right, so Hillary, he's the bishop of Potier. He is, he's sometimes called the, the hammer of the Arians um, and the Athanasius of the West. So again, he's in the, the Athanasius was fighting against the Arians in the East, and he's kind of doing the same thing there in the West. Uh, he, like Athanasius, was also exiled for a while. We're not exactly sure why, uh, but it might be just he ran into the, into the emperor and then he talked back to the emperor. Uh, he is a doctor of the church. That's a term, um, kind of a particular term. Not talking about like a church, church doctor. Um, doctors of the church uh, kind of distinguish from just like priests, uh, pastors, bishops where a bishop is a bishop in a place where generally they, they understood the phrase, someone who's a doctor of the church was a teacher for the whole church. Yeah, today it would be like having a PhD. And what, and what is that? But this is true in other fields too. When you have a doctorate or you're, you're a doctor of something, you're able to practice in that, that field. You have this authority to be, you're an authority in this, right? And so the, this is before universities come, before like a doctorate comes. But a doctor of the church, and doctor really comes from the word teacher. From do, like doctrine means teaching, right? So a doctor was one who can teach, who's authorized to teach, and not just teach like, so a, a, a pastor, a presbyter, elder uh, in, the, in the church in a local area, or even a bishop in a city has responsible over his bishopric, whatever. Um, but a doctor of the church is one who teaches. And <coughs> so then there'd be not necessarily an organized school, but that it was. Um, so Luther talks about that. He had been made a doctor. He talks about that. I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't go and be writing to people in other places if I wasn't. I, I, I'm a doctor in the church. And so felt like he did have some right and authority to teach outside of his own classroom in the university that, that he was, and, and then the doctors of the church, if they disagree, then debate each other. Um, so Hillary, uh, here his main, his big work is on, is on the Trinity. His book is called On the Trinity. It's actually not just a single book. I believe it's a series of 12 books on the Trinity. These paragraphs come from that. He writes, he, who, he by whom man was made had nothing to gain by becoming man. It was our gain that God was incarnate and dwelt among us, making all flesh his home by taking upon him the flesh of one. Don't you love that? Making all flesh his home by taking on the flesh of one. Because Jesus became, it took up residence in his humanity, he can now take residence in you by that shared humanity. Wow, that's delightful. Which I think that's, that's Christmas, right? Why, why, do we sell, why is Christmas such a big deal? Because Jesus took on human flesh. Whose flesh? Our flesh. So that he could dwell among us. Christmas makes Jesus closer to us. One with us in this way. 
Um, we were raised because he was Lord. When he takes on, we, we do this at, I mean, we, it, the culmination is at Ascension, but it starts at Christmas. When Jesus takes on human flesh, that's a promotion for mankind, isn't it? God's one of us <laughs> now, right? Um, God, that's, that's, that's why the Christmas hymns are so lovely, the Lutheran Christmas hymns, because they point this fact out, that now that Jesus has taken on human flesh, God can't leave. He's in. He's committed. Because he's taken on human flesh. Now, now he can't separate. Now he can't write off. You know, you think about that? Like after Adam and Eve sinned, God could have just written off the human race and said, you guys figure it out. I'm starting over. Or after the flood. You know? Or at the flood. You know, he could have just wiped everyone out. Or he threatened to do a couple times you know, with Moses and, and so on. But you see how Christmas changes things. God is a man. God's, you know, God, what is God's opinion of the human race? Well, he's kind of invested now. Uh, shame to him was glory to us. He being God made flesh his residence and we in return are lifted anew from the flesh to God. Uh, the, next, the next paragraph. Uh, For he is the best student who does not read his thoughts into the book, but lets it reveal its own, who draws from it its sense and does not import in his own into it, nor force upon it words a meaning, upon it, nor force upon its words a meaning which he had determined was the right one before he opened its pages. That's some wisdom there, especially concerning like biblical interpretation. How do we read the Bible? Especially we could do, we should do this with every book, but you know, he said, you, first of all, you draw it from it in a sense. You draw the meaning from the text. You don't put your meaning into it. And a lot of people, and you wonder how people can, can twist Bible verses and passages, because a lot of times they'll do that. You take your ideas and you kind of force them on the words. And you say, well, it can't mean this because I don't think it can mean this. Instead of letting the words tell us what they mean. And we draw, we not, don't force upon its words a meaning which you, and, and then you determine it beforehand. You've ever had someone listening to someone who they already did, they already made up their mind already. Um, and before they read something or they, you can't change their mind. They, 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 they already decided what it was going to say before they even started. Uh, there's a humility. Um, Lord, open now my heart to hear and through your word to me draw near that we would allow the word of God to change us, not us to come at it with kind of our, we're the ruler and we come at it with our own uh, preconceived ideas. Finally, uh, he, for he took upon him the flesh in which we have sinned by that wearing our flesh, he might forgive sins, a flesh which he shares with us by wearing it, not by sinning in it. He blotted out through death the sentence of death, that by a new creation of our race in himself, he might sweep away the penalty appointed by the former law. He let them nail him to the cross, that he might nail to the curse of the cross and abolish all the curses to which the world is condemned. Um, again, beautiful. Just, and that's, the, that's one of the, the treasures of the church fathers. They write a lot. Hillary wrote a ton. Um, and they have a lot of good things to teach us. With all of the church fathers, we'll find some of them that teach things that we would not 
write that way, don't think in our line of the scriptures, we can find them. No one is infallible. Oh, not even the, the, these church fathers. But they write a lot of wonderful things, a lot of wonderful and amazing, beautiful insights into the Word of God. And so we allow them to teach us, but we're still on guard. Yeah. Athanasius we've talked about before, so maybe we won't spend a, a ton of time. We don't have a lot of time now. Athanasius, uh, so he's the fighter against uh, the, the Arians. I mentioned last time, I think, that he was exiled five times. Because so even though the Council of Nicaea condemned Arianism, it was still popular and kind of a majority. And so there was constant fight, constant fight to, to, to fight against it. He keeps on being exiled out of exile. Alexander, then he gets to come back for a while, and then he has to go again. Um, and so that Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Like, every, everyone's against me, which probably wasn't that true, but it felt like that. Um, Athanasius just writes at the Council of Nicaea, Jesus that I know as my Redeemer cannot be less than God. Just a confession of Jesus' divinity. Top of the backside, Athanasius against the world. That's this in Latin. Uh, in the next one, he's describing the canon. That is the canon of the scriptures, like which books of the Bible. Every once in a while, you'll appear by saying, oh, they, you know, men decided which books were to be in the Bible and which were not. Um, if you understand the history, it's, it doesn't work that way. They didn't just randomly decide which books were in, which were out. They recognize which are the books of, of the scriptures. This is him writing about this in 367. These are fountains of salvation that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone, these books of the Bible, in these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take out of from these. Concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees and said, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures. And you reprove the Jews, saying, Search the scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. Um, so describing the, the books of the Bible that they had, I, that were being recognized as, as scriptural, realizing that there were some, they knew that there were some that were not. There were other writings. Um, but it's the content of them that makes it uh, compelling. He writes on the Incarnation. Again, on the person of Jesus becoming human flesh. Uh, the body of the word then, like a, being a real human body in spite of its having been uniquely formed from a virgin, was of itself mortal and like other bodies liable to death. But the indwelling of the word loosed it from this natural liability so that corruption could not touch it. Thus it happened that two opposite marvels took place. The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body. Yet because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. This is the, the, the majesty and the brilliance of God, and the wisdom of God, that he uses death to conquer death. You know? Like, how, how can this be? How, how can death get destroyed? Well, Jesus goes into it. And by the same act where, where yes, he has to become a man so that he's liable to death, he can die, but because of the, the union of the human and the divine, because this is the God, um, this death of Jesus then becomes the death of death. Death meets its match. And it realizes now it, 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 it loses. Uh, this, is, this last one is great. Um, maybe I'll, I'll leave it to you all summer. Basically, the, 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 Athena, the 
the Arians had taken over churches. And so he is consoling his congregation, who he gets exiled, and, and the congregation, the, the, the Christians who were against Arius, get kicked out of the churches. The Arians have the churches. They have possession. They have the majority. So they voted the others out. And, and, so, and so he's consoling them and says, look, they've got the church, but you've got the faith, which is better. Someday you might get the church, you might we get the church back. Jesus will give us everything that we've lost. You haven't lost anything. You have the faith, that's the most important thing. And so it's a wonderful consolation. I'll leave that to you, you to read. Beautiful stuff. Okay, so then the next guys we're going to look at are the, uh, the called the Cappadocian Fathers, the Gregories, uh, and then Basel, and maybe we'll see how many more we get to. Gregory of Nanzianzus. More and more good stuff. Shall we close with God's word is already there?